when you and I see the rainbow, it ought to be a reminder to us how God loves us, how God has reached out to the human race to save us. Thank you for joining us for this week's broadcast of A Word from the Lord. Today, Dr. Beach starts a new teaching series on How Does God Say I Love You? Today is part one, The Covenant with Noah. Here now is our speaker and teacher for A Word from the Lord, Dr. Foley Beach. Father, as we open your word this morning, we give you thanks for your love for us and how it's expressed in so many ways. I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning and eyes to see the truth from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who loves humanity so much that he has attempted again and again to express that love. And one of the main ways he has done that is through the scripture of what we call covenants. The covenants of God. Actually, this Bible, this book is a covenant. We have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Oftentimes we think of the Old Covenant as just something, one, that that there was just one, but there are many Old Covenants. Uh, As you go through the the Scriptures, there are several of them that we're going to call attention to during the next few weeks. So I've entitled this series, How Does God Say I Love You? And one of the main ways He's expressed His love is through His covenants. So I want you to open with me, please, to Genesis chapter 9. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to look at this together. Throughout human history, the Lord has reached out to the human race to express his desire for a relationship and to express his love for humankind. His covenants, which he made throughout history, reveal his love, reveal his grace, reveal his faithfulness. This morning, we're going to look at the covenant with Noah. But before we do that, we need to define what a covenant is, because we hear the word thrown around a lot, especially in religious circles. We, we hear it in real estate circles as well. You, know, you have to keep your covenants. Uh, the word in Hebrew literally means to cut. It's as if you cut your hand, and there, you, you've seen pictures of that where, where people will cut their hand and they, they seal an agreement. But it literally means to cut. J.A. Moyer defines it as an oath or a promise of God. Covenant is something that, that God's about. A biblical covenant always starts with God as the initiator. Verse 9, I will establish my covenant with you. The idea that God's the one that, that's seeking it out. He's sovereign. He's the one that's doing it. Secondly, the essence of a biblical covenant is always God implying, I will be your God and you will be my people. He desires relationship. He desires intimacy with his people. David Atkinson, in his definition of covenant, explains it this way. He says, the twin themes of divine sovereignty, like on one hand, and divine intimacy, on the other hand, are brought together in a major, major biblical word, covenant. When God makes a covenant, he sets the terms and conditions as a covenant ruler. But his covenant people are invited to share in real partnership with him. So covenant, it's an agreement. It's something that God does. He initiates, and he wants his people to follow. Now, in order to get the context of this passage, I want to do a quick walk through Genesis. So you have your Bibles. You should be in Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are the creation stories. 
Genesis chapter 3 is the story of Adam and Eve and the fall of humanity when they chose to rebel against God and sin entered the human race and entered the world. We call it the fall. Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. And we find the story of the first murder, the first killing. And then in chapter 5, we have the genealogy from, from Adam down to Noah. And then chapter 6 through 9 is this basically the story of Noah and the flood. And where I want us to pick up is in Genesis chapter 6. So turn back a few chapters. Genesis chapter 6. Here we see that the corruption of humanity became too much for the Lord. To me, these are some of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. Genesis chapter 6, look at verse 5. Here we see that man's heart was only evil. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The next verse, we see that God is sorry that he made man. He's grieved in his heart. Verse 6, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. The next verse, we see that he says he's going to remove man from the earth, and that he's sorry that he made him. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals. And creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Verse 11, we also see about the corruption on the earth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become and all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. Sad verses. Here God had made the creation And it's gotten so bad that it just pains his heart. But not everyone was like that. In verse 8, we see the story of Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. So here's Noah as a contrast to the rest of the people. Now, in my study, uh, just a little side note, I I found something that was kind of interesting. Uh, These little Bible trivia things always kind of fascinate me. But but Noah had a grandfather, and his grandfather was Methuselah. Anybody ever heard of Methuselah? Well, Methuselah is known as the man who's lived the longest on the earth. Now, his name, if you transliterate his name, his name literally means he will live and then it will come. He will live, and then it will come. Now, imagine being Enoch, his, his father, naming him. You know, we're going to name him, and he will live, and then it will come. That was his name. Well, what's fascinating to me about this was he, he was 969 years old when he died. So think 969. Well, when he was 187, his firstborn son, Lameth, was born. 182 years later, Lameth, his first son, was born named Noah. Well, we're told that the flood started in the 600th year of Noah. So if you add those three together, it comes up to 969. Someone has said 
that this demonstrates God's patience with humanity. He waited and he waited and he tried to get man to turn, but they, they got worse and worse. He will live and then it will come. Methuselah. So that's the little side note. All right, so Noah builds the ark. And you all know about all the ridicule and the, and the hard time he had and people made fun of him. What in the world are you doing? Then his family enters the ark. They enter the ark. Then it begins to rain. And we're told that the flood comes, that, that it not only comes from the top, but it came from the bottom, that the, the, the deep sprouted up torrents of water. We also know that at that time in the earth, you're probably wondering, why did people live so long? Well, there was this thing called the firmament that was like an incubator. It surrounded the earth. It was water. And it was at that time that the firmament rained down, and it did it for 40 days till it was gone. After the flood, the ark settles, we're told, as the waters begin to recede on the top of Mount Ararat, or near the top of Mount Ararat. And then the land begins to dry up, and God tells Noah, I want you to go out of the ark and begin to settle the land. And what's the first thing that Noah does? Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Then the next few verses we're told that the Lord tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply. He gives instructions about what kind of food to eat. In verse 5, he institutes accountability. I thought this was fascinating that the animals are going to be accountable. But in verse 6, we're told that humans are also going to be accountable about murder. And then in verse 7, he again tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And then that brings us up to the text that we heard read earlier. This covenant with Noah. Verse 9. And here in verse 9 and verse 10, we see the extent of the covenant. Look at verse 9. Then God said to Noah, and to his sons with him. I will now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you and the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. What's the extent of the covenant? To Noah and to all his descendants. Now, if you think about it a minute, if everybody was wiped out, then Noah and his family repopulated the earth. Everybody descended from them. So that includes us too. All of us. The extent of this covenant also includes all, all the animals, all the livestock, all, anything that's living upon the earth. And we see the content of the covenant. Verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So what's the content of the covenant? That God will never again by water destroy all living creation. 
that never again will a flood wipe out at all. Now, why is this important? Why is this part important? Well, think about it a minute. If you're Noah and his sons, the only time you've ever seen rain, it created a catastrophic event. And now God's put in place this rain cycle that rain's going to come. And it, but it's not going to be to destroy the earth. Then we see the sign of the covenant, verse 12 and 13. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So what's the sign of this covenant? The rainbow. It's a sign of grace, a sign of mercy. I don't know when you see a rainbow, if that's what you think about, that this represents God's mercy, God's grace to the world. It's interesting that when you find the rainbow in the rest of the scriptures, it's always in the throne room of the Lord. And it's often wrapped around him in some way, symbolizing the glory of his presence. Derek Kidner writes, The obvious glory of the rainbow against the gloom of the cloud seems enough to make it a token of grace. Even without the reflection that it arises from the conjection of sun and storm as of mercy and judgment. The idea that here you got the storm and the sun colliding. God's judgment and God's mercy colliding. Bringing his grace upon humanity. Now I found this is quite interesting. Who is the sign of the covenant for? Verse 14 and 15. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. So for whom is the sign of the covenant? The rainbow? It's not for us. Although we see it and we enjoy it and we think how pretty it is. It's for God. The sign is for God, for him to remember that despite of how awful we get as human beings, he's made a covenant, he's not going to wipe us all out again by a flood. I know sometimes we, get, we listen to the news and we see the horrors of, of humanity going on around the world or even in our country and places, and we think, how can God put up with this? He's going to wipe us all out. We deserve it. But the rainbow is a sign to remind him that he's made a covenant not to do that. Then we see the permanence of the covenant, verse 16. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. How permanent is the covenant? It's everlasting. It's forever. As long as there's an earth, it's forever. Now, I've thought about this covenant from the Old Testament, and it's easy for us to just kind of dismiss it as something that was between Noah and the people back then, and isn't it nice to have a rainbow now and that sort of thing, but how does it apply to us? And I thought it was very interesting, the New Testament reading that we heard this morning, the epistle from 1 Peter, really explains part of this and gives us an application for our day. So if you can, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're not familiar with your Bible, just start in the back. You've got Revelation, 
Jude, the three Johns, and then the Peters, first and second Peter. So first Peter, chapter three, verse 18. He writes, for Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Another little side note here. What happened to the people that were wiped out? We're told here that Jesus went during that three-day period between his death and resurrection. He actually went and preached to them in what was called Hades and gave them a chance for repentance. And only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers. Did I just read that baptism saves you? It appears so, if you look at it. But when you understand the story of Noah... And God's covenant with him and with us, then maybe you can understand a little bit better what Peter was getting at here. You see, what, what he's saying is what baptism represents saves us, not baptism itself. What baptism represents saves us. When you and I receive God's grace and his unconditional love, by receiving him into our life, by accepting what he did on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection. God saves us. And baptism expresses this. And baptism, which is, I think, best pictured by what the word means, which means immersion. We hear the word dunked, the idea of being dunked under the water. In the original Greek language that comes from, it was like a ship being sunk. They'd say the ship was baptized. It was sunk. Well, that picture, I think, really describes what baptism is supposed to be about for us. We say evil is not just washed away, it's destroyed, like the flood. We've been buried with Christ in his death, like the floodwaters. The old nature has been crucified. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. We're a new creation, just like the earth was a new creation after the flood. In regard to salvation, like Noah and his family, we've been saved through the waters, not by the waters. The breadth of this covenant of baptism that we participate in, the breadth of it is for everyone who's willing to come to the water. Everyone. The content is that we will not be destroyed. Death, where is thy sting, we say. What's the sign of, that we use in baptism? What's the sign? It's, it's the water. And the water symbolizes the death of Jesus, the cross. And those of us who are Anglicans, when we baptize, after we baptize somebody, then we take oil, which symbolizes the Holy Spirit, and we mark the sign of the cross 
on a person's forehead saying, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ on forever. So for whom is this sign, this cross? Who is the sign for? It's not for us, it's for God. You see, he looks at us once we are saved through the cross, through what Jesus did on the cross, his death on the cross, his blood poured out upon the cross. And so when God looks at you and me, in spite of our filthy rags, he sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ. The theological word for that is we call it justification. God views me just if I'd never sinned. He's looking at me through the cross. And that's what that sign is there for. It's for him. And what's the permanence of this? It's everlasting. It's eternal. Once you're saved, you're saved forever. I will never leave you or forsake you, he says. So what should all this say to us? I think the major application to us is that when you and I see the rainbow, it ought to be a reminder to us how God loves us how God has reached out to the human race to save us. And that ultimate salvation, of course, is in Jesus Christ, the new covenant, which we'll get to down the road a little bit. J.A. Moyer wrote, in summarizing this covenant, he said this, In the case of Noah, the covenant idea consisted of the selection of one man out of a world of sinners, the divine promise to him of salvation, the provision of the means of salvation and the extension of the benefits through him to his family and in a broader sense to the whole world. You see, that covenant may have happened thousands of years ago, but God's still offering it to us through Jesus Christ. So let's have a prayer together. Father, we give you thanks for giving us insight into your ways. Thank you that you are the God of creation. And when we see the wonders of creation, whether it's a rainbow or a mountain or a beach or a wave or under the sea or the created universe, they remind us of you. They draw us to you. The heavens and the earth declare your glory, says Psalm 19. Thank you for the privilege to have eyes to see, to appreciate. Help us, Lord, walk in the promise of your covenant that you will never leave us and never forsake us no matter how high the floodwaters get in jesus name we pray amen that was dr beach with today's message for more information on this message and this ministry please visit a word from the lord.org There you will find today's message and previously aired messages, where you can listen to them again and share them with friends and family. A word from the Lord.org has audio archives of Foley Beach's one minute radio feature and much more. So visit a word from the Lord.org for audio, articles, and information about the ministry. You can find a word from the Lord on Facebook and be sure to click the like button to follow our feed on Facebook. You'll want to be sure to visit Foley's blog at bishopfoleybeach.blogspot.com. 
On the blog, you can read the many articles posted by Dr. Beach. Many of these blog entries are excerpts and full articles published in local publications. You can also follow Foley on Twitter. His Twitter address is twitter.com at Foley Beach. If you have any comments or questions about the program, you can contact Dr. Beach by email at foleybeach at a word from the Lord.org. Again, his email is foleybeach at a word from the Lord.org. You can contact us by mail. Our mailing address is P.O. Box 636, Monroe, Georgia 30655. Our mailing address again is P.O. Box 636, Monroe, Georgia 30655. Whether you send us an email or write to us, we'd love to hear from you. A Word from the Lord is made possible by God's grace through the continued prayers and loving financial support from you. And we thank you for this opportunity to spread the hope of the gospel of Christ through this ministry. Join us again next time for the next broadcast of A Word from the Lord. For Dr. Beach and everyone here at A Word from the Lord, it is our prayer that you would be seeking A Word from the Lord.